I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. It is time for a performance reset. Today, we shed the shit. We take off the cloak of 2020 and we begin to set our path towards high performance in 2021. And we do so in style, ladies and gentlemen, because it's via your questions. Yes, today's show is a chance for me to sink my chops into questions delivered by you, the listeners. The reason? what we have received many questions and what we've realized is that a large number of these questions circled all around looking forward towards a path of performance coming out of this year and so we decided to throw them together and let me tuck in and so today we've got questions around trends of performance in 2021 how to address the stress of 2020 with our children charting your path of performance ahead even the slight chance of getting to race in 2020, and so much more. It's a really fun one. Now, we're going to jump over our squatty update this week. We're going to go right into word of the week. So Barry, get prime with the ukulele. But I've got to have a little grumble first. You see, your frequent listeners, you would have heard me talking about brewing tea. And I sit here today recording and I feel dirty I honestly feel dirty because I just found myself being forced into a corner in the new purple patch center having to get this ladies and gentlemen having to prepare a cup of British tea by putting the water in the microwave first that was all I had think about it pop the tea bag in the water boil it up in the microwave add a little bit of milk Oh, watery, nasty goodness. So if I'm a little bit grumpy today as we get through these questions, you'll know that I'm just not happy about the tea situation. But enough about me. We're talking about performance. I'll get over it. And so, Barry, it's over to you. Let's do that thing. It is Word of the Week. We like the way he thinks. Serious with the way. Let's open the book. It's time to take a peek. Yes, word of the week this week is coffee, and it's nothing to do with my grumbles about tea. It's more about mindset. You say today, I want to remind you of a story that I've actually told on this show many, many months ago. And it was a story that I told to my pro athletes at a training camp as I felt they needed a little bit of a shift in mindset, a little perspective, shall I say. And this story bubbled up the other day, and with so many people out there feeling maybe a little fragile right now at the end of their tether, I thought I'd bring it right up to the front and retell it. Now, you might have heard this story before, but if you haven't, I think it might help in these times. You see, once upon a time, there was a daughter... And she was moaning to her father. Life is just miserable. She doesn't know what she was going to do to make it. She was tired of all of the struggling. And it just seemed like one problem was solved and another one would follow right on. Her father, who was a chef, by the way, took her into the kitchen. And he said, sit and watch as he took three large saucepans out of the cupboard, filled them with water, put them on the stove, and began to boil them. Once the three pots had boiled, he took out a potato, an egg, and some ground coffee beans. And in one pot, he put in that potato. In the second pot, the egg. In the third, he threw in the coffee beans. And he let them sit and boil Without saying a single word to his daughter, she sat there moaning impatiently, Dad, Dad, what are you doing? You're not listening to me. 
but over time becoming curious. What was he doing? A potato, an egg, and some coffee? Well, after 15 minutes, he turned off the burners. He took the potato out of the pot and he placed it in a bowl. He pulled the eggs out and he placed the eggs in a bowl. And then he took a ladle and he put the coffee out and he put it in a cup. What do you see, daughter? he asked. She quickly replied, potatoes, eggs, coffee. Somewhat annoyance in her tone, of course. He turned and he said, look closer, touch the potatoes. And she did, and she noted that they were soft. Then he said, take an egg. And after pulling off the shell, she realized, of course, that the egg was hard-boiled. And finally, he said, taste the coffee. That rich smell brought a smile to her face. Okay, potatoes have become soft. The eggs have become hard. What does this mean? The father turned and explained it. You see, the potatoes, the eggs and the coffee beans had all faced the same adversity and that was the boiling water. But each one of them had reacted differently. The potato went in strong, hard and relenting, but in boiling water it became soft and weak. The egg, it was fragile, with the thin outer shell protecting the liquid interior. But then it was put into boiling water and the inside of the egg became hard. But the ground coffee, that was unique. Because after they were exposed to boiling water, they changed the water and created something new. Which are you, he asked his daughter. When adversity knocks on your door, how do you respond? Are you a potato, an egg, or a coffee bean? Set the tone, troops. We charge forward. We leverage the adversity and discomfort. And with that, the word of the week is, of course, the answer, the coffee. And all this talk about food, well, it's got me hungry. And so with that little bit of fun, anecdote and story, we're going to get to the questions and we're going to do so via the meat and potatoes. Yes, troops, the meat and potatoes, and we are returning to questions from you guys, and goodness me, have we had many. Now, as we get into this, you might be sitting here saying, well, I wanted to ask a question, I really did, and you can. Questions at purplepatchfitness.com. We'll be sure to get back to you and provide an answer. Sometimes it might take a week or so, but we will get back to you. Or, of course, we're going to include your questions on the show. And today, we're going to try and put them under a bucket of theme. Looking ahead, enough of this nonsense. Shed the shit, as I said. Driving to a performance reset in 2021. And so, we have quite a few questions, some of which are going to do a little bit more of a deep dive. Some we're going to be nice and short and sweet, but hopefully impactful. And they're from, in honesty, all over the world. And so, here we go. Are we ready? First question is coming from John, and John is based in London, so good on you, mate. Thank you very much. And it's a great question. Here we go. John asks, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what are the positive trends? And he made that italicized and underlined. So the positive trends that you're seeing emerging towards 2021, maybe even a result of, quote, our new normal. Are there things that go beyond Instagram that you think we should employ? You know, everyone saw COVID as a chance to make sourdough bread and learn how to knit. It's all great. But what do you think is going to stick? Or should we be seeking any other long-term trends? Well, John, thank you. That's a great question. And I... I have a lot to say on this one, so let's dive in. It's going to be a little bit of a deep dive, but I've put a lot of thought to this. And I think that to frame the answer first, 
we need to remember that stress of any kind is ultimately a catalyst for growth. And this applies in sports performance, it applies in society, it applies in life. And so while we shouldn't underestimate the challenges, and we must absolutely acknowledge the reality of these challenges, I believe that there's always deep in those challenges silver linings, or what you would call opportunities, chances to take the challenge, or in this phrase, the stress, and convert to emerge into a better place, into a better way of doing. And 2020 is no different. It's honestly no different. And in asking your question, it really sort of made me pause and think. And I spent a long time thinking about these. And I'd I did come up with some positive trends, but rather than just throw them in, I, I categorize them so that I think it's going to make it easier for you to digest. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through three in sport and then three in work or life. And perhaps society is a better word, but let's I'll let you choose. Let's go with work and life. So sport first and then work and life. And I'll try and make it succinct. So the first one's around sport is I think that athletes globally are able through this adversity and stress to hone in on the position or placement of sport in the bigger picture. I think that there was a real trend of athletes getting really stuck into just a mutually exclusive lens. I do my sport on the side of life and I just want to get faster, achieve my goals, cross the finish line, uh, PR, whatever it might be. And through this, what you start to realize or what we have started to realize, more people have started to realize, is that sport can play a really important role in the larger fabric of people's lives, how they show up in the workplace, how they show up for their family and friends, de developing the platform of resilience and health of which good performance across the whole aspect of life really sits. And it also creates a venue for connectivity, for community, for a sense of purpose and belonging. So it goes well beyond just something that you do. It's instrumental in the platform of health. And when people begin to join the dots of that, they start to become a bit more self-reflective, perhaps a bit more pragmatic in their lens and maybe a little less obsessive around this singular lens. And so in the same way that in many ways the concept of balance is overstated and, and rather than people trying to find this mythical balance where everything with home and work and hobbies and sport sits in this perfect place of utopian harmony which is nonsense instead people start to find a better work-life fit and I think in sport that starts to become a big catalyst of that equation, very, very helpful. So that would be my number one trend of people starting to realize that sport has a role in the bigger picture. The second component of sport is somewhat related, and that's that through this process, finally, 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 many athletes have a more expansive mindset on what it takes to perform. You have heard me talk long and hard about stress and looking at sports performance through a holistic lens. In fact, our whole methodology is based on the pillars of performance and the old well-trodden quote by now that when someone has an appropriate endurance training program with integrated strength, a backbone of really simple but important nutritional habits and of course all supported with adequate recovery including sleep they accelerate every time and I found that so many athletes still get drawn to more 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 accumulation of work and real lip service towards those other components I think that the stress of this time and the understanding of the mental stress the layered mental stress that this situation has applied to many people has made many, many athletes pause and reflect and actually realize, hang on, 
the need to develop habits in areas such as sleep and nutrition and hydration in conjunction with the necessary required hard work in the training, both strength and endurance, is absolutely critical. And COVID-19 has done nothing but amplify this reality. And I find now more than ever, many are really open and actually eager to adopt this mindset. And so sometimes you can speak it and conceptually and logically People can understand the importance and value of, let's call it, the pillars of performance. Now, now, I see more saying, ah, okay, this is what we're looking to do. And so I think that looking forward, I see not just purple patch athletes, but people that are interested in performance globally being potentially less drawn into the fringe and hopefully drawn into the more building block capacity to set up good habits to help them thrive. And the final sports condition of improvement for John is around technology and focus. There has been a whole bunch of very cool technological advancements in the last couple of months And those have actually focused mostly on connecting people. And that's a good thing. Over the last few years, the vast majority of technology development in sport have really been anchored in tools and equipment and data analytics. But the COVID fog that descended fell over a world that ultimately forced athletes into a realization of the absolute value of human connection and community. And I hope, now I'm going to be bold, I predict that there is going to be a trend back to real value in group activities and community around sport. But I also think that we're going to see a parallel emergence of being able to connect people virtually in training and performance online. And there's already a whole bunch of software that's emerging to bring real bi-directional coaching for people all over the world to participate and to make them feel connected to others. In fact, even we are launching just next week a beta program or a beta program for my English friends for our live bike coaching. And that's going to be launched on a brand new system. You can think about it like an elevated peloton that's actually truly coached, but also bi-directional. So allowing feedback and high accountability of the participants at home, video feedback. And these types of platforms and the trend behind it, I think is only going to help pave the way to improve the enjoyment of sports and performance globally, accelerate gains as well. And... I think that what's happened this year is it was a trend that was emerging over the next four to five years, but now it is happening right now, right now, these months. We're living it. And so I'm really encouraged by that because I think that we can have an amplified, for lack of a better phrase, virtual performance world. At the same time, we have at the human level people that really want interaction with others at a human level because we are social beings and so I think that's a a wonderful marriage of connectivity both in person and virtually and I think that's nothing but a positive trend in sport. So those are my three big components of sport. What about the workplace, work and life? What's going to evolve I think in, in a trend around the workplace? Well, I think that what we will start to see is as life begins to move back towards normal, we're going to see a positive hybrid of work-life fit. And I don't believe that the full remote working is the route to new optimal efficiency for workforces. And this year has, though, shaken up the classic office environment. And right now, I believe that the door is truly open for many industries to completely reimagine the workplace and the expectations around it and ultimately come up with what I would see as a more hybrid model. 
that can create a better balance, there's a word, between work, social and effective work from home. So, no, I don't think the office is dead, not by a long stretch. I believe that we need connection and we need, we are social beings, but the office is on the way to being evolved. And some of the things that we just did because we do them or did them, that can evolve now. And I think that we will have a bit more flexibility, a bit more integration and a real opportunity to reimagine the workspace and the way that we work. And that will help both companies, culture, and of course, individuals thrive. The second component is this year, I think, has really created an awareness of the absolutely critical component of employees and workers all the way up the chain having great mental and physical resilience. In fact, it is the backbone of effective work performance. And very similar to the pillars of performance, I think that there has long been lip service around this subject. It's been given to, you know, corporate wellness programs, the need for fitness and health. But this year has shown in stark terms, even those that are going to be negatively affected by COVID-19 that unfortunately catch it in dire terms, tend to not have a backbone of great mental and physical resilience. And so beyond just thriving, it's actually also surviving. There is an absolute need for a platform of health, physical and mental. And it is off of that platform that employees and workers can develop adaptability, resilience and effectiveness. Now, I've long said that the days of martini lunches are well behind us, but at a level that starts at the executive team level and permeates all the way through the organization, I think that there is going to be a real and substantial commitment, not just focus, commitment to team health, resilience and performance. And I hope that if we can start to move in that direction, that can permeate decisions that go through the whole of society. And so I think there's a shot that we don't just permeate corporate culture right now. We could permeate societal lens on the importance of health. And goodness me, I hope so. And then the final positive trend that I see is a shift throughout all this adversity and this junk, a real shift in people's values, people's personal values. And Perhaps I'm being hopeful here. Perhaps this is just a short-term thing that will fade away very quickly as we do tend to have quite short memories. But I really hope, as much as believe, hope that there will be a longer-term emergence of a slight redistribution of balance of values around family, work, and social life. Society is undoubtedly tilted too far into the work obsession. And I use that word deliberately, obsession, because it's not work effectively. You have to work hard to achieve. So hard work is absolutely critical success. But guess what? So is play. And so is downtime. And so is time with your family. And I think that many, many people have got to look in the mirror all the way up the chain and realize that time with your family and time for yourself and a little bit of downtime is more valued now than it has been for years. And I hope, so I'm going to finish it with a hope, I hope and trust that this redistribution of value around these components extends well into our future life. So John, you got a pretty meaty answer there. I hope that helps. But that's the perspective of trends coming towards 2021 in sport and life. And so with that, let's go to William from Oklahoma. William, thanks for your question. You are question number two today. We are going to be talking about racing. Here it is. After initially writing the entire 2020 racing calendar off, I'm now holding out hope against hope that my planned race in November might actually happen. My training, within context, hasn't been bad at all, 
but I'm nowhere near as primed mentally or physically as I would expect to be leading into a key race. And so the question is, if, 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 if racing does happen, do you have any advice or thoughts on how I should frame my expectations, my mindset, or even my training going in? Well, Captain William, here's the news. Races are coming back. In fact, there have been several races over the last few weeks. And for the few and the geographically lucky, let's hope to be able to see more. I think it's important for me to note before I answer the question that a return to racing is a highly personal choice. And there should be, rightfully, consideration around safety. Now, my feeling is that decisions around safety are probably less around the race venue and the actual race experience and a little bit more around the surrounding area, the hotel you're going to stay in, the places that you're going to eat, etc., etc. And there is no right answer to this. And I absolutely respect the decision of anyone that would go either way, deciding to, nope, I'm not going to race, or you know what, I'm sick of this, I'm charging forward. Much of your decision, I believe, should come down to who else you're closely connected to. So do you have elderly relatives that you're in close contact with? Okay, racing and exposure might not likely be a very good idea. You get the picture. But with all that said, I think that, William, any return to racing for anyone this year, 2020, all the way through to the end of this year, should be viewed in three simple terms. Number one, it should be a celebration. Number two, it should be about building a platform for next year, 2021. And number three, you should have absolutely zero expectations, which I should point out and have done before, that is not the same as having low expectations. And so anyone, anyone stepping up to race without a feeling of unleashed joy and a mindfulness of the pleasure and happiness of being able to complete and without a certain sense of privilege of being lucky enough to get this opportunity in this year, anyone that doesn't have that joy is completely missing the boat. And so if I were you, I would enter and I would go and execute your race if it comes up with a big smile on your face, giving your absolute best shot, doing as well as you can without any self-judgment around outcomes. Because if there ever, ever is a time to just go do and go and see what's in the tank authentically, it is this year. And I would despair honestly despair at anyone racing any type of event who's in that race with a scowl in their eyebrows touching going with a bellowing hearty on your left with great vigor because they would be missing the point william if you do choose to race do it with a smile celebrate with your competitors go and give it a crack and if your performance is absolutely magic. Be thankful. Be proud. It's super. And if it's a tough day after a long layoff and no racing, be happy and celebrate it still. And realize that it's still going to help you as your platform for 2021. And so, as we say at our training camps, here is your packing list. The only thing you need to leave at home is your ego. And I would encourage you to do the same with racing. Go and have fun. I really hope that racing comes back. I think it's great for the competitors, but it's also great for the athletes around the world globally. We need something to give us a spark to say we are getting back to normal. And if it charges ahead, good on you. Go and enjoy it. All right. Two down. Goodness me, I'm feeling wordy today, it seems like. Our next question, Jill from the Bay Area. For you guys further afield, that is the San Francisco Bay Area. Jill asks, from a performance standpoint, this year it's felt like it's a complete wash. And I'm not sure what mindset I should adopt or take with me into the new year. 
I'm desperate to thrive in all areas, but in all honesty, I'm feeling overwhelmed to begin. Help. Well, Jill, here's the headline news. Your feelings are very common. It is overwhelming for many. You are not alone. And in fact, right now is a time where people are feeling a little afraid. I think that it's a really big mistake to take every challenge that you have, all of the issues that you find yourself facing, and put them on top of each other, creating a huge insurmountable challenge that not, cannot be overcome. And so instead, let's break it down. Let's go a bit more process-driven, realize that we don't have to solve the world in day one, and let's go through a very simple process. And so I will do my, my best for you, Jill, to, to break this down into a routine or, or a path that might be helpful. I think the first thing that you want to do is pause and look ahead. And what I will label, find your why, your purpose. And just as we started with today, ask yourself the question, where does sport and performance fit in your life? What's really important to you? What will help you as a human being? What will make you happy? And in times of challenge and crisis, it's actually much easier to have a very real conversation with yourself about values and importance. And so when you feel yourself slammed to the ground by the events of the year, stand up, look at yourself in the mirror and say, what's really important? Because you can use the solutions or the answers that you come up with as the anchor to frame your journey. So I think finding your why and your purpose is the first thing that you want to do. What you don't want to do is just go back to the old. Now, before, with that established, the second thing to do then, before you just start diving in and planning, is to actually pause and look back. Review the last months, because we've all been through a journey over the last few months. And so that journey will have created lessons for you. And if you go back to old Jill pre-COVID and then the last few months, I think that you're in a position to really have an objective discussion with yourself. What are your old habits that were really positive and supportive of your performance journey? But what were the other habits that maybe hindered or were just a waste of time? And you can go through an exercise, have a little bit of a, almost a post-mortem of the last few months and your prior life before that. And think about your performance habits that you were nailing and executing and doing and saying which of those were the ones that you want to keep, which of them are the ones that you want to stop, and then these last months, are there any others that you need to begin? So what do you keep? What do you stop? What do you begin? Now, by the time you have gone through these two things, finding your why and then diving back and looking at habits and doing keep, stop, begin, by the time you've gone through those two processes, I think that you're going to be able to breathe a little easier because what it's going to create is a little bit of clarity, and then you can start to get busy planning. But you're going to be planning with purpose. And the first thing that I would do, stage three, is to find a goal. And that goal or those goals should be anchored in sport or life or habits, whatever is important to you and ultimately excites you. But the key is that the goal or goals shouldn't be too far away, three to six months at most, and they should be achievable. So I would keep your goals in early 2021 really relatively short term. I would also keep them pretty flexible because we have to realize and acknowledge ultimately that we're going to be entering next year with still a little bit of ambiguity and a chance that it's going to turn all to custard again. And so don't go out and pin all of your hopes on an April 1st triathlon race because you might actually be chasing fool's gold. And if that is going to cause you to collapse in despair, well, it's not going to be good if it doesn't go ahead. And so with a goal or two short term 
it is then that you start going through our cycle of cultural performance. All right, what are the two to three to four things that you really need to focus on to achieve that goal? What are the priorities for you to be successful? What can you commit to? What can you actually do? And then begin to move forward to that. And I wouldn't over magnify the goals. I wouldn't make too many. I would keep it really simple and ensure that the goals allows plenty of freedom to fill your performance time with really fun stuff. Because I feel like if you can just sink your teeth into something that's accessible and tangible and creates a little victory, a little victory, so it can't be overwhelming, but a little sense of accomplishment, that will set the tone. And you can build on that because then you've got a platform and you can build bigger things to come. Because ultimately, I think in this environment, as you look to 2021, heroism is in fact trying to not be a hero. Instead, just getting into a rhythm of success, small success, and it will breed larger success. And so move forward, start to progress, and your world will begin to become more certain and it will begin to open up. So I hope those phases or stages help, Jill. I wish you the best of luck. Of course, we can help drive you there. But the first thing you want to do is, of course, find your why. Let me know how it goes. All right, three questions down, folks. We are large and in charge. I just downed the last of my very tepid, milky, watery, disappointing cup of tea so that we can progress to question number four. And we go to L.A. County. And this is a question from Robert. And this is one for the parents. I'm standing on the fringe of performance here because suddenly I'm going to find myself giving parental advice. Am I the man to give parental advice? I'll let you be the judge. Here's the question. Thank you, Robert. The question is, what are you and Kelly, what are you and Kelly telling Baxter, our eight-year-old son, about this time in history? Global pandemic, normalizing mask wearing, virtual schooling, wildfires. Yes, I know it's very smoky in San Francisco. Civil and racial unrest. Goodness me, Robert, you're making it sound as bad as it is. I'm struggling with how to come up to grips with myself, let alone make it a teaching moment for my kids. Well, I get it. I think that the, as I answer this, I think that the the best way to start, Robert, is the most important thing, in my humble opinion, is to lead with, something very simple, the truth. You see, Kelly and I believe that Baxter and all kids can handle the truth and in fact benefit from it. And so perhaps a good way to answer this is to give you a couple of personal examples around the challenge of our times. But as I do this, I want to be very, very clear that I'm, I'm not providing these examples as some bold proclamation that Kelly and I have all of this worked out and we're some utopian family that is perfect and we're leading Baxter up to be some hero of our times. This stuff is really hard, although I do think that Baxter does have presidential qualities. But with that caveat in mind, I'm just going to provide our lens. And you might hear it and not agree, and that's great. But I'm going to give you a couple of examples, and I hope hope it helps. The first is around masks, which you mentioned. So my older brother happens to be a very accomplished high school teacher in England. And in the UK, interestingly, there is currently much discussion as the kids are now going back to school. There's a lot of discussion around how schools should return. And the vast majority are proclaiming that it is absolutely impossible to request that children, high school children, from 11 to 18 years of age, wear a mask when inside the classroom. They're kids. 
they will never keep a mask on. Now, I hear this argument, but at the same time, Baxter, here in San Francisco, who is eight, is going to, quote, school every day in a remote learning lab with eight other kids. So a little pod because we're doing remote learning. So they are doing online learning via Zoom, but in a pod of eight children. And all day, every single day, each of the kids attending, all eight of them, are wearing a mask and they never, ever remove it. No issues, no challenging. It's just, well, it's what is done. Why? How are these American children wearing masks all day without complaint? And how is it impossible for high school kids in England to not wear a mask? Well, of course, we've laid the groundwork and rules. But I think it's also really important that every child in the class has had really extensive explanations and discussions with their parents and the tutors and each other around what this situation is, what the risks are, and what the consequences could be. But I think even more important than that is the positioning of what the mask is. Because, yes, it might be weird and somewhat annoying and maybe sometimes uncomfortable, but the purpose of the mask isn't to prevent you from getting sick, Baxter. The purpose is to protect others. And in fact, it's to protect your classmate Jake's grandmother, who lives with the family, and Ellie's mother, who's diabetic and asthmatic. It is to help others. And what that ends up being is really empowering. You have a role to play. You can help others. And even eight-year-olds are really good at taking action if you empower them and they appreciate the why. And so that's just an example of truth and a little bit of coaching. And so I think that high school kids in England could wear masks, don't you? Let's come around uh, a second example around the Black Lives Matter movement and racial injustice. It is, and it was an incredibly challenging time, I think, for all parents as we experienced mass protests, a high polarisation. And, of course, I'm not going to provide my political viewpoints on this right here in this show. But in that time, Kelly and I made the decision to talk and talk a lot about Yes, race, but also broader topics. And I, I will caveat, we were in, we felt we were in at least a really fortunate place because of the school that Baxter attends. He attends an international school in San Francisco. And so by definition, the school itself and the community has a worldwide lens. And it's anchored in French, it's French immersion. But what has happened organically is that Baxter's closest friends at school includes Mexicans, Egyptian, Indian, Japanese, Americans, Swiss, and many, many more. And so by definition, we happen to be in a environment where there are a broad range of backgrounds and ethnicities. And so that opened the opportunity for us to tell stories about the challenges that his friends could face, whether it was around, yes, ethnicity, but also gender and other concepts more broadly. Beyond this, though, telling stories that Baxter could identify with, that were tangible, that had injustice embedded with something very, very personal, it, it really opened up the opportunity for a couple of other venues as well. Because beyond this, I think it was also important for Kelly and I to actually ask what I mean by that is ask others because we wanted to ask others that actually have a personal perspective or experience or those that might have good resources for us to learn and grow and support our words. In other words, 
Kelly and I, with Baxter, didn't need to pretend or feel like we needed to pretend that we had all the answers because we don't. And so in a funny way, this movement, and you're going to have to stay with me with this one a little bit. Stay with me, Robert, in L.A. County. But in a funny way, it's similar to the mindset around body parts. You see, growing up in England, every single body part was always labelled a very quirky name. And each family had very different ones, but <clears throat> it was globally the <clears throat> private parts, shall we say. And the private parts, ladies and gentlemen, were always referred to as something different than the actual name of the body part. So we had the shoulder, the hand, the ankle, and then the wee-willy-winky, or the tutu, or any other bizarre names. And so with Baxter, when he was born and started to understand words, you know what we called it? The penis. Why? To normalise it. After all, it is a penis. Now, this might sound like a really small thing, but I actually think it's quite important. And I also think it isn't me being some weirdo San Francisco West Coast funky boy. I feel like if we begin life unable to discuss the body, how are we ever going to cascade on as our children get older to discuss puberty or sex or any other component? And if we make something a little weird and taboo, and then it becomes weird and taboo. And if I look through a really pessimistic lens, it closes the door on Baxter or any other child being able to communicate if anything did happen outside of the lines of what is appropriate with an adult. And goodness me, I hope it doesn't. You see, you try and normalise the body. And then we have a cemented rule that whatever an adult says for any reason, whenever an adult would say for any reason, don't tell mummy or daddy X, Y, and Z. He has to tell us. And I guess we can expect no surprise birthday parties for any one any time soon, but that's the key. And so I think that sets the lens of the, the discussions, and somehow I started to talk about penises, but it, it, that, that's the lens of communication that we take, and that's how we're talking to Baxter. Now, my final thoughts around your own struggle is... I think it's also really important and okay for you to share that struggle also with your kids. So vulnerability is actually strength in my opinion. And perhaps this is the most important thing that I can say. Kids don't need to believe that you or us as parents have every answer, that we are all knowing in all things. I think that what they need is to know that you care and that you tell the truth, and that you're trustworthy, and that you're always trying to learn and grow. Because if our kids see those traits, and then they're not set up with a pass-fail of, I either know this or I don't, and therefore I'm a failure. Instead, they start to lean into the fabric of the journey and a growth mindset. And a little bit of vulnerability. And so we can't ask our kids to embrace the journey or have a growth mindset or look to learn if we claim we have all of the answers. And so to finish this great question, Robert, thank you for the question. Lean into vulnerability because it's incredibly powerful and incredibly strong. Just my opinion and uh, my lens on a little bit of parenting. Well, it's getting meaty, guys. This is, uh, this is good stuff. I'm enjoying this. Uh, the next question, question number five, just a couple more questions to go. But question number five, Roberta from Florida. This year, more than any other, I feel like my focus and daily energy fluctuates more than it ever has. I have wild swings around energy, drift in and out of moods and focus and feel globally less affected. 
Now, I am admittedly navigating stressful times, as many are. We appreciate it. But do you have any practical tips around managing energy and focus? It is a recurring theme, Roberta. It's a great question. And in fact, I will say in all of the conversations that I've had, employees, athletes, parents right now, right now are experiencing more mental fray and stress than ever before. And I've covered these topics in other prior episodes, so I'm going to do a quick list for you. Here's my six quick tips. Number one, structure the day. When you're home and your work and your social life melts into a single existence, it can become overwhelming. And so you must force transitions. And those transitions used to come naturally via commuting or anything else. But that's all evaporating right now. And so you must structure. You must plan. You must coordinate with friends and family. You must structure downtime, removal from work, and create healthy transitions. If you're not spending time on the bus or in the car, replace it not with more work but with meditation or exercise or something that brings you joy. And it is going to provide immediate help. Tip number one, structure the day. Number two, eat really well and stay hydrated. It's powerful. At this time, many are upping alcohol. Many are leaning into coffee or quick-fix meals. Instead, use this as a time to build a platform of health and be very, very cautious with daily alcohol. Now, that's coming from a man who freaking loves really good beer. But we have to admit it's a suppressor and a poison. And so, look, you don't need to give it up, but just make sure that you're really pragmatic with it. Number three, take a daily nap. Seriously, 15 to 20 minutes, downtime. It will massively improve your mood and productivity in the afternoon hours, and it's important to realize you don't have to fall asleep. You just need to be quiet and take downtime. Number four, embrace the sprints. Realize that effective work is a series of sprints. So avoid really long, long bouts at the screen. And some of this comes into planning the day. Don't just flow through meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting with zero gaps. Even if it's a 10-minute break to walk away, it's critical. Get up, move around, embrace the bathroom break, and nail some hours of really effective work over just dragging more and more hours anchored in screen time. Number five, get connected. Isolation is massively corrosive, whatever it takes. Ensure that you get connected with others outside of work. Now, that might be online yoga video classes, virtual bingo, distance coffee. Whatever it is, it is potent and important. We are social beings and don't forget it. And finally, this is going to be counterintuitive, because you're suppressed, give to others. You will elevate mood if you define a sense of purpose and the ability to help others. Not as a way to hide from yourself, but to actually feel empowered and useful. It will drive accomplishment and it will give you good feelings. Whatever you can do, Roberta, to give happiness to others, whatever it is, go and do it because it's going to help you. I hope that helps. All right, I'm going to do one bonus question, so I am going to go two more. This one's from Sherry. And uh, Sherry, I'm not sure where you're from, so it's just Sherry uh, from who knows where. But uh, actually, I think I know who, which Sherry this is, but uh, I'm not going to say... Sherry from Let's Leave It at Who Knows Where. Hi, Matt. I discovered your book and by extension podcast last year, and it's been a huge help for my training. Thank you very much. I'm currently a physician assistant in an intensive care unit with a rotating schedule of three 13-hour shifts per week, typically scheduled in a row. Oof. It's tough. My question is twofold. First, do you have any suggestions of how to optimize sleep as I work primarily overnight shifts? And second, I'm having a hard time fitting in my training in the work days for the day shifts because I work 
leave for work at 5 a.m. and don't return to after 8 p.m. And so I've tried a really early morning wake up or I've tried to come home and fill it at the end of the day, but I'm worried about sacrificing sleep and getting minimal benefit. And so how should I go about it? Well, Sherry, this is a great question. It's an important one. So let's go through. First, the sleep on the shifts. I would first really prioritize getting great sleep, setting up great environment, dark room, a cool room, making sure that you sleep at the same time every day on the days that you are not working. And so in the balance of stress, it's going to be very, very difficult to limit the physiological stress when you're doing long overnight shifts. And so as much as you can, you focus on higher quality sleeps when you're not working. It's an absolute priority. Almost think about it as building resilience for the less optimal workday sleeps. I would then aim to add really short 15 to 20 minute bouts of downtime to restore in those days. And that's obviously especially those non-work days because it's going to be more practical for you. Thirdly, I think that nutrition and hydration is incredibly important to support the less optimal sleep patterns. And that's an obvious thing, but I think that if we view it as, okay, one pillar is compromised, recovery and sleep, we need to bolster it with great hydration, great nutrition. In other words, really focus on the other pillar. And that becomes really, really important. Finally, as I alluded to before, when you have coming off the night shift, environment is going to be critical making sure the room is really cool, making sure it is pitch black, making sure that you avoid screen time going into it, that you make sure that you ensure that you're not having anything that will disrupt sleep quality, such as alcohol and caffeine, anywhere close to you going to bed. I think that will really, really help. And then as you do have downtime, don't panic if you're not sleeping. Keep a paperback by the bed with a low-level light. And if you wake up, at the wrong time, just be down, read, and maybe you'll fall back to sleep. Just avoid those screens are all you can do. Now around training effectiveness, I spent some time thinking about this, and I think that it's important that you do something, something on those long work days. It's gonna be much, much better than you doing nothing. But that doesn't mean it has to be hard training. Long, stressful days of work with compromised sleep, your body isn't amiable to absorbing and adapting to really hard training. And so instead, we've got to be more pragmatic. You see, if you go three days of work to dinner to bed, to work to dinner to bed, to work to dinner to bed, maybe with a splash of TV on the way, it's going to make you feel lethargic, moody and overworked. And so what we want to do is not train on those days, but move the body. And we want to move the body for your soul. And so perhaps on day one, you do get up early and you do something very early. Let's just make it up 40 to 45 minutes of run with a little bit of high intensity in there. Boom. So you actually feel like you're setting the tone with something really good. You come home from a long day of work, you don't do any evening activity. And then the following two evenings, I would move the body and ask yourself, what is fun? What provides a release, a mental release and the dishwasher effect to the brain and a little bit of fitness touch up? It could be 20 to 50 minutes in duration, a little bit of varied intensity, depending on how the mind and body feels. If you feel surprisingly good, Go a little stronger. If you're mentally frazzled, check out, feel the soul. Just go around with the sights and sounds of your neighborhood. And then you fall back into training on those days that you aren't working. The final thing I would say, and this might be absolutely impossible to you, but I bring this out to everyone, is do you have a healthy commute option? The reason I think about this is Purple Patch Pro Cecilia Davis-Hayes, who's been a guest on the show a couple of times, is currently in medical residency. And she is absolutely crazed working in ER in New York City. 
Now, what we do with Cecilia working in New York City is we integrate riding and running when possible into the commute. And it's got a high flex of structure. It might be heavy intervals. It might be just simply soul filling. It all depends on really what her body and mind gives her. Now, this might not be possible for you, but if there is any way of you doing some form of an active commute, go for it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we find ourselves now to lucky number seven, the final question. And this question hasn't come with a name attached to it. So I'm not sure who it's from. So we're going to claim that this question is from Barry. Barry, you're stepping away from the ukulele, mate. Here it is. I think it's a good question. I'm going to give you credit. I know that you don't speak in this show, but I'm going to give you credit. And it's a very simple one. Here's the question. Matt, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Goodness me. Here I was thinking I was a triathlon coach. All right, I'll give it a crack, Barry, or whoever sent this in. Thank you very much. Let me answer it like this. I am an optimist, always. A realist, perhaps, but eternally an optimist. One of my brothers said to me the other day, we are living through history, and This really is a defining time in our modern history with an impact on the whole world. And in years to come, we will reflect on these years. But I think the one thing that's important for us to believe wholeheartedly is that we will emerge. And I also think that the stress of these times require a little bit of perspective, come up a level, pause, because the world and and society over the course of time, has had many, many, many massive changes. It has experienced wide conflicts, large evolutions in our structure and society. And you know what we do? We stabilize, we adapt and evolve. And I think that we can and will now. I think that ultimately we will learn and improve. And there is so, so much (laughs) that we as a society are doing wrong right now. And it can be depressing. But I believe that once we peel back this pandemic and the terribly partisan mindset of politics and the challenges that we face from the way that our media is set up and the impact of social media platforms and so much more, I think that at the boots on the ground level, there is a fundamental truth. And that's that the individual, the vast majority of individual are good. I believe that most people are good. And I believe that most people have good intentions. And I also believe that most people want to contribute and care about their fellow humans and want to see the world improve. And I think that this is actually the norm. Now, They might disagree on the route to improve, but I really believe that most people are fundamentally decent. And yet every day we get pushed images of the fringes, of the dramatic, of the headline grabbing worse, and it is depressing. And we also have people in positions of power who are seeking to exploit those images and those messages and also don't necessarily act through the lens of decency. But despite them up there, at the street level, making it sound like I'm from the streets now, don't I? But at the street level, I believe in people. And so it's with that belief that I ask, how can I not be optimistic? And I really hope that you are too. And so with that, I have to say, yes, I'm optimistic. And I'll also say, guys, that I thoroughly enjoyed this episode and I'm really, really thankful for your questions, your thoughtful questions, and I'm thankful for you guys, the listeners, because the types of questions that we receive, they, in honesty, really raise my hopes and 
they enabled me to have great joy of doing this thing, this show. And so I think that's a lovely place to leave. I want you to have a super duper week. I want to see you at the same time next week. We've got a wonderful guest coming on the show next week. But until then, we'll leave it there. Guys, thanks for the questions. Remember, questions at purplepatchfitness.com and we will strive on. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers.